and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Critical Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, guys, so I uh, did a podcast this week with John Atak, sort of catching up with him. Certainly talked about Scientology stuff, but mostly talked about opening minds, work he's been involved with recently, and um, and just the whole sort of went all over the place, because that's how it is talking to John, and it's always fascinating, always fun, and I hope you guys will check out that podcast. Uh, also... Um, so, a couple weeks ago, I did a podcast on fair gaming, and yes, that activity does continue to go on. I have not had my website attacked again or taken down, which is good. Um, but, uh, of course, you know, the, all the security things and the repercussion, the, sorry, the consequences of that are still, uh, you know, ongoing in my life. So, that's kind of what's happening right now. And um, I wanted to, again, thank people who have responded to that by upping or joining support on Patreon, because that is, that is really, really helping um, in a real big way for me and, and this channel. So I wanted to give a shout out to my most recent Patreon supporters, uh, and those are Eli Zarindast, uh, Christopher Nakov, Sean Tui upped his support, thank you, uh, Caitlin Gallup. Welcome, uh, Alums, uh, Susan Anderson, and Kevin Zay. And if I butchered anybody's names, I do apologize. It's just my way. <laughs> All right, so we've got a lot of questions, a lot of good questions this week, and I want to get into it and give you some good beefy answers. So let's get to it. Leo Perez, I don't quite understand OT7. If you're auditing yourself, how do you pass to the next level? Can someone just say, Okay, I'm ready. I passed OT7. Who tells them that they are ready or not? Okay, Leo, so you have uh, asked about something that is uh, a really big topic in Scientology, and that is the uh, area of certifications and awards or validation of, uh, of levels or achievements or courses that are completed. And on the, uh, how I'm going to break this down here to answer this question is I'm going to talk in, in a broad sense about how people finish services because OT7 is really no different from almost every other service in Scientology and how it is completed. And the way you finish services in Scientology is you attest to having completed them and gotten the rewards and gains and abilities that you are saying that you are uh, basically pledging or attesting to the fact that this is true. Um, and these apply to all Scientology services, courses as well as auditing services. Each course has a, an ability gained or a purpose or a reason why you're doing it, and there's a sort of an end result you're supposed to get from it. The same applies for all Scientology auditing services. These are listed for the major services on the Bridge to Total Freedom, Scientology's big chart that lists out all its major services. And it gives an end result for each of these services. For the auditor training levels, for example, you have the ability to audit the materials covered on, you know, that auditing course. So on level zero, you learn, or class zero, as a class zero auditor, the ability gained is the ability to audit class zero processes. 
kind of no-brainer on that one, right? But over on grade zero, when you do the actual auditing grade, uh, in other words, you're audited on communication processes, the end result of that grade is the ability to communicate comfortably with anyone on any subject or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. So uh, grade one deals with problems. So when you're audited on grade one, you're going to be addressing problems and, and all kinds of different aspects of, of problems in your life. The end result of grade one is the ability to, to uh, spot the source of problems and thereby make them vanish. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, people buy into this, get into this mindset where they now feel that they are the be-all, end-all of communication or problems or the various other things that are addressed in auditing. And so they attest to these levels. They get through um, a certain number of processes. They get through, you know, certain, uh, you know, like, okay, on grade one, let's say you're audited and audited and audited on problems. And uh, the way the grades run is you're audited on your own problems, problems you've made for yourself, problems others have given to you, problems you've given to others, uh, and uh, problems that other people have had with other people. There's, these are called the flows. There's four of them. Uh, to self, self to others, others to self, and others to others, right? So you're audited on these processes that address problems from all these different flows. So at the end of it, you're supposed to be comfortable with spotting problems on all these different flows and being able to make it all go away. And during the course of the auditing, you will say things that might be interpreted or could be interpreted as you feeling like you've achieved these kind of abilities or gains. And so the case supervisor, and, and if you don't know what that is, well, I've talked extensively about auditing and case supervision and how the case supervisor oversees the progress of auditing. Um, that's the case supervisor's job, is to spot indications that a person might have completed the level that they're on and then send them over to the qualifications division where they do the attest. And they go on a meter, you pick up the cans, and there's a person, not an auditor, it's an examiner. And the examiner will put a little card down, a three-by-five card down in front of you, and you're holding the cans, and the person will say, would you like to attest to having completed, you know, to having achieved the uh, the gains of this level or to, to these abilities gained. And the abilities are written on the card, like the ones I said, the ability to communicate comfortably with anyone on any subject or whatever. Um, some of the abilities are confidential. When you get to the OT levels and you're doing your attest, then the little card they're going to put in front of you is going to be something that you can't tell other people you're attesting to. Um, but for the most part, we all know what the abilities gained are on all the different levels. So you attest to that, and that's you saying, I got it. I'm done. I'm satisfied with these results. And the examiner will then ask you, would you like to write a success story? And if you don't want to write a success story, that's going to be a bad indicator. And it's going to show that you didn't really get the ability gain because you're not happy and cheerful and wanting to write a success story. So then you will be go, you'll go to an auditing session. You'll get all fixed up and, until you're happy and want to write a success story. So part of so the two parts of the attestation cycle, or you know, attesting to completing something in Scientology, are getting on the cans and saying yes, I have achieved that, and then writing a success story. So that's basically how it works for OT7, just like it works for any other level. A person solo audits, they keep worksheets of their own, 
that go into a solo folder. On the OT levels, and I'm going to assume you guys know what I'm talking about with this, right? OT, the Xenu stuff, and all of that. OT 1, 2, and 3 are solo audited. OT 4 and 5 are delivered by an auditor. OT 6 is a course, and OT 7 is solo audited, and so is OT 8. So most of it is being you sitting in a room by yourself with a meter telepathically addressing your body thetans and that sort of thing. You're keeping worksheets, including writing down realizations you're having or thoughts that are occurring to you during the course of the auditing. And all of that goes into a folder, too. But it's not your regular PC folder. It's your solo auditing folders, which you, which you have access to. During the course of your auditing in Scientology, you will never have access to your regular PC folders. Even once you achieve, uh, once you're on the solo levels and you're solo auditing, you still don't ever get to look inside those regular PC folders. Uh, that's where all the case notes and CS instructions and reports and all kinds of stuff are, are in there. On your OT levels, you have a solo folder, and so that you do have full access to, but the only thing that's in those folders are your own worksheets and the reply coming to you from the case supervisor telling you what your next steps are for your next session. So that's kind of, that's so you have two sets of folders, right? Um, the CS has your regular folders, but he's also got the, the, when you're on the OT levels, he's getting your solo folder, and that's all he really needs for the most part. And he looks and he goes through the worksheets and he sees what the meter was doing and he sees what you're saying and writing. And there might be indications during the course of your auditing that you have reached the EP, the end phenomena, the end result of the auditing level that you're on. Whatever it is that you're supposed to say or do at OT7 or OT3 or 5 or whatever, I don't know what, the, what necessarily the confidential abilities are that the case supervisor is looking for, but whatever they are, once he starts seeing indications of them in your worksheets, he might even ask you questions about what, some of what you've written down um, because he might want to clarify some of your statements. Maybe you actually hit the EP three sessions ago and now it's kind of coming to light that this is uh, that this is a thing. So anyway, by hook or by crook, the CS is the one who determines whether you've reached the end phenomena. And when you have, this case supervisor is the one who determines that you are now done. It's not up to you to say that you are or are not done with a level in Scientology. If the case supervisor thinks you're done and says, hey, look, you've got the end result here, and sends you to a test, and you show up there going, uh, you know, they put the little card in front of you, and you go, uh, no, no, not at all, I don't, no, I don't think that, then it's just back to the level, and you're going to get more auditing, right? Uh, if you do feel, and like I mentioned before, if you do feel like you've achieved that result, but you don't want to write a success story, you're not happy about it, they're going to want to fix that. And that's basically what I just described here, is how every single action in Scientology is completed. Um, whether it's, again, whether it's a course or an auditing service. So, hope that helps clarify some things, Leo. Steve Wood. I often ask myself, what do the top Scientology executives do in the whole on a daily basis? Back in the day, they were the top people within Scientology, and now they're reduced to what? I don't know, but it would seem that they have been totally relegated to nobodies. So at what point do you believe that they feel on a daily basis that they are still saving the planet? 
Surely they can't really believe they're fighting the good fight when they look back at what happened to them. Please let me know what these people do each day and how they can reconcile that their lives with saving the planet. Or are they just waiting for LRH to return so they can tell him what an awful person David Miscavige is? The entire thing sounds totally nuts to me anyway, but as always, I am fascinated to hear your take on this topic. Thanks for the question, Steve. So, okay, a few things. Uh, obviously, I've never been in the hole. So my speaking or talking, but I have been on the RPF. <laughs> okay, so, uh, which is, you know, pretty much as bad in, in, in some ways, not as bad in other ways. Um, so all I can really talk about is my own understanding of the mindset that goes on, you know, when you're, when you're enduring this kind of abuse and why you would continue to stick with it. And it's not a matter that, um, you know, I've talked about how Scientologists believe, especially Sea Org members believe, that their daily actions are bringing about a bettered world and that they are saving the planet. But that doesn't mean that every time a Scientologist, who, a Sea Org member who's a cook, is making omelets, that he's thinking, oh, these omelets are saving the world. I mean, they have the, the, the grind just like everybody else does. Many, many Sea Org members don't like their jobs, don't particularly like what they're doing, but they show up to work anyway because they've dedicated to the purpose of it and they feel a duty and and sense of honor and all that kind of stuff. And it's just they don't really have much of a choice anyway because they're in the Sea Org. So this is the work you're doing. This is the way it is. This is just the environment. And the culture is the way that it is. And most Sea Org members don't like the culture. They think it kind of sucks. It's very oppressive. Um, but this is what they have been reading from L. Ron Hubbard and hearing from their seniors and from David Miscavige. This is the kind of environment that they are told is necessary to to maintain a level of discipline where things will get done effectively and in enough volume that they will be making uh, impingement on the world at large and they will end up uh, driving into the, uh, you know, making headway into society, changing society, and changing the world as a result. So everything kind of adds up in the big picture, even though if you're only looking at the little picture of your life on a day-to-day -day basis, it doesn't really look that sexy or wonderful or exciting. Um, but, the, you know, the, but the big picture is what everybody is kind of there for. That all being said, I can only imagine what people who have been relegated to the hole for years on end are thinking, but I don't think that they think that being in the hole is, is particularly saving the planet. They think that everybody else in Scientology and the Sea Org are the ones who are actually constructively helping to save the planet. They are so out ethics, they have gotten into such deep trouble and hot water that they have been having, they've been pushed to the side and have to fix themselves so that they can get back in the fight. Maybe they kind of think of themselves as being in a bit of a big, huge pit stop or a big rehabilitation effort. And this is very similar to the mindset in the RPF. When you go there, you are a broken person, a broken Sea Org member. You have done things that the group has, has, has told you are criminal, traitorous, treasonous to the Sea Org, treasonous to mankind, and you believe it. So you, so you go there in a, in a very, you know, uh, re, sort of prison mindset that you deserve this work that you're going to have to now do in order to fix yourself so you can get back in the game. And if that takes years, okay. I mean, it's not any fun. Nobody enjoys it. 
But if that's what it takes to get through it so you can get back in the big game and get back, you know, then then that's what you're going to do. Because what else are you going to do? Are you going to go out and live in the wog world? Are you going to go out and live, you know, a life of, of materialism and and uh, and be denied any ability to contribute in any way and just go off and be a degraded being? Because that's what L. Ron Hubbard says. If you leave the Sea Org, you're a degraded being. And it sounds as bad as it is. It's a degraded, I mean, you're just a scumbag. You're, you're the lowest of the low. And, and, this, and again, all Sea Org members are Scientologists first. So in the world of Scientology, the Sea Org, the sea Org is a small subset of the bigger world of Scientology. But if you leave the Sea Org, you know, you don't want to leave Scientology too, but you basically will be if you, if you just, you know, go off and be a degraded being. So, so there's this mind trap. All of this is a mind trap. I'm not, I'm not describing this as though this is a logical, rational system that really makes a lot of sense. This is the, this is the, 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 the walls and ceilings and floors of the prison of belief. This is where people get themselves to is they believe that if they leave, their life will be even more useless than it is now. At least staying in the hole or staying in the RPF is staying on the path to redemption. And if you leave that, you've really lost everything. And of course, there are, there are many people who end up in these positions, especially those in the hole, who have been declared suppressive people. So it's not like they can leave the Sea Org and go join the public Scientology group and continue as Scientologists. They will be declared. They have already been declared. And the actions they're doing are what they think they need to do in order to get undeclared. So, and this is all done by David Miscavige personally to these previous senior top executives. They're all declared suppressive. So there is no other place for them to go as far as they're concerned. I hope all this makes sense. It's twisted. It's disgusting. It is the very definition of the control that David Miscavige uses to exert over, you know, to laud over these people and, uh, or lord over them, I guess I should say, and, uh, and control them and control their life, right? And they think that if they continue long enough, if they make up the damage, if they if they are, you know, sorry enough and demonstrate their their sorriness by um, by doing everything that's asked of them, by reporting on others who are maybe not you know disaffected and not wanting to be part of this anymore, if they tell on them right and try to curry favor with Miscavige, somehow they'll get themselves out of this position. And Mike Rinder talked about how he realized when he was in that situation and then he got sent out to, to the UK to, to do some PR work that was supposed to be part of his making up the damage that he had done. I mean, he was sent out there with the idea that he was going to come back. And he agreed that he was going to come back. And I'm sure when he left, he was thinking he was going to come back. But something snapped and he went, oh, my God, I've had enough. I can't take this anymore. This is insane. That's when the prison of belief opens up, the doors, you know, open up, the light shines, and they are now free from that prison. So, so everybody's got their breaking point as to when they're going to snap out of it. But the reason they stay in it are, you know, as far as I can tell, all the reasons I've laid out here. And 
Um, and everything I've ever talked about with, uh, with motivated reasoning, cognitive dissonance, and the, all the other things that go on in, in your head or in people's heads when they, when they are in these prisons of belief are, are, is all fully applicable to these people in these situations. They are buried in cognitive dissonance. They are overwhelmed by motivated reasoning. They're, you know, they're very intelligent people, and that intelligence is being used to rationalize why they deserve what they're getting. You know, that's what belief, that's the, that's the power that the belief has. So, I don't know. I hope that all makes sense, and um, that's the best answer I can give you, Steve. So, there you go. SP Sheeds. What happens if one goes into a church of Scientology and wants to buy a book? I assume that they try to get your information, but what if you choose not to give it to them? Or do they have any way to verify that you aren't giving them a cold number or email address? I can understand requiring information to take a class, but just to buy a book? All right, well, Scientology is all about identity collection when they are selling somebody a book or service. It's just standard policy. And they are not alone in this. Every single website you ever go to, they're trying to get you to sign up for their newsletters. Every single place you go um, where you're uh, signing up for some service, they're wanting your contact information all the time, even though you really don't, there's really no reason that you need to give it to them, but they want it anyway. Like at the local gym, you know, they want to call you. Hey, you probably haven't haven't seen you down at the gym lately if they care enough to call you at all. Well, Scientology is desperate to call you because they are desperate for people. So Hubbard said to collect the identities of every single person who ever walks in and buys something. Not inquiries. Hubbard said, I don't care about people who just come in and inquire about it. It's only if they buy something that they have shown some level of commitment or interest strong enough to fork over some Benjamins those are the people that we are never, ever going to forget. Those are the people who reached, so therefore there was some spark of interest, so therefore we can always get that spark and fan it into a flame and make them into full-blown Scientologists. That's, that's the thinking on it, right? So they're going to do everything they can to get your information. You obviously are not required to give it to them, or you can give them false information, and there's no fact-checking they do on that. Uh, at, the, at the moment, they will skip trace you later. They'll find your new address if you move. Um, but they're, if you give them, you know, your, your actual name and number and everything, then they'll have you. But if you give them false information, then they'll, they'll lose contact with you pretty quickly. And that's, that's kind of how that works. Brian Torpy, I have a question about the order of Scientology's lower conditions. Maybe you have no idea, but why did Hubbard make them the order he did, least to worst? One, liability. Two, treason. Three, doubt. Four, enemy. It seems to me it should be doubt, then treason. Treason sounds much worse than doubt. With doubt, you're still questioning someone's intentions or actions, but haven't solidified a conclusion. With treason, you're certain someone has committed a betraying act. Why did LRH consider doubt worse than treason? Okay, thanks for the question, Brian. This is really interesting because uh, that's not the right order that you listed them in, in the lower conditions. So let me correct this for you. Uh, from, from least to worst, uh, the lower conditions of Scientology go, actually first, let me explain for everybody, the conditions of existence in Scientology, uh, or the, these ethics conditions, I should say, are um, 
our states of being uh, in relation to almost anything, uh, in relation to yourself, your family, your children, your work, uh, a group, mankind. I mean, you can have it in relation to or, or, or directed towards anything uh, that you are in a condition, it's called, a condition of being. Um, and there are lower there are lower conditions and there are upper conditions. And the upper conditions are not called upper conditions. They're just called the conditions. And the, and the bottom of them is non-existence, where you just don't exist at all. There's no relationship of any kind. If, if you're a total stranger to me and I'm a total stranger to you, we are in a condition of non-existence with each other. We don't know each other. We don't, as far as we're, each other is concerned, we don't exist. Um, then there is uh, danger, emergency, normal, power, or sorry, affluence, power, and power change, which is just kind of a, a weird little thing that's, that fits in there. Uh, those are the regular conditions, the, 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 the regular five conditions according, and this was all developed in the, in the mid-60s by Hubbard. The lower conditions came about when Hubbard, um, I think when he was in the Sea Org, he worked out these lower conditions. And these are conditions below the condition of non-existence, where you've actually taken on uh, the flavor of an enemy where you're now working against another person or group or your family or whatever it is you're looking at, okay? You can assign conditions to people uh, or they can self-assign them. They can self-assess what the situation is and work it out for themselves. Uh, and, the, and the conditions all have a formula or steps that you follow in order to get out of that condition and move up to the next higher condition. You do the steps you rise up the ladder of conditions until you're up in a position of affluence and power where you're on top of the world and everybody, you know, everything is wonderful. That's how it's supposed to work. And oh, if it was only so easy. So the lower conditions are these bad conditions. If you're in lower conditions, you're considered a bad person or an enemy or somebody not to be trusted. That's liability. Liability is you are a liability. You're an enemy. You're, you're or not an enemy. You're you're somebody who is starting to take on the color of an enemy, as Hubbard says. So you're, you're you know, you're worse. It would be better if you weren't around. Non-existence is a better place to be than liability, because if you're a liability, you do, people have to pay attention to you. Nobody can really trust you. Nobody's really sure if you're there, you know, on the same terms as everybody else. So uh, that's the first place you end up in a lower condition is liability. Below liability is doubt. That's where doubt is. And doubt is you're not making, you can't make up your mind one way or the other about the group or person or whatever. Should I be connected? Should we have a relationship? Should I have this job? Should I be working here? You know, that kind of thing. That's doubt. Hubbard placed it right below liability. If anything, doubt should be above liability. But Hubbard considered that if you were in doubt... If you started waffling on your belief or agreement or something, then you were automatically worse than a liability. So that kind of tells you how vindictive Hubbard was right off. He's blaming you. He's saying, oh, you have questions about whether you want to do this or be here or not? Well, clearly then you have taken on the color of an enemy because it's all in, right? Black or white. You're with us or against us. I mean, this is us versus them thinking manifested. So the doubt condition is what you do in order to examine the, your intentions and objectives and the intentions and activities of the group you're looking at being part of, 
or the relationship or individual, maybe it's a friendship you're looking at. Whatever it is you're in doubt about, you go through the steps and you resolve it. You figure it out. You make a decision. Below doubt is enemy, where you're just full on a declared enemy of this relationship or group or person. And below that is treason. And treason is as bad as it gets. You have act, you've, you've betrayed all trust. You are a horrible, awful person. And, uh, and the making up uh, is going to take a lot longer and the reconciliation is going to be harder. And below treason, by the way, is the condition of confusion where you're just a mess. <laughs> you just don't even know what the hell you're doing. So, uh, so that's how those conditions work. Joanna T. Masturbation. How serious a crime is that in Scientology? Does it affect a Scientologist's progress up the bridge? All right, masturbation. So, um, yes, it is a serious, it's a somewhat serious thing. It's not really like you're going to get in oodles and oodles of trouble. It's a, it's, it's, I, would th I would put it as like an infraction. It's something you're going to be talked to about. It's something you're going to be discouraged from engaging in, but it's not like somebody's going to, you know, it kind of depends also on the level you're at. In the Sea Org, it's much more heavily policed than, say, if you're a public Scientologist, where they don't, you know, you're not living on a Sea Org base, you haven't agreed to the Sea Org code of conduct, you're, you know, it's, it, you have a bit of a looser, less disciplined life as a public Scientologist or even as a staff member. The Sea Org is where they're really interested in exerting full control over every aspect of your life 24-7. And they have the ability to do that because you're a bit of a captive audience there. So here's the thing about masturbation in Scientology is that it's considered restimulative. It's bad for you mentally. In Scientology, people don't just have thoughts. They have pictures. And those pictures have weight. They have mass. There's actual energy connected to them. And that energy can negatively affect you if you are mocking up these pictures. In other words, you're, you're bringing up a picture from your mental mass, your mind, and you're looking at it in order to fantasize in masturbation, right? You're, you're mocking up pictures or you're watching porn or something. Still, there are pictures there. And, uh, but, it's, but it's the mental pictures that have the energy that can re-stimulate or bring into mind other pictures that also have energy that are similar to the ones that you are mocking up or creating or fantasizing to. And those other pictures might have damage, damaging connotations to you because the mass and, the, and what those pictures contain could have pain and, and other things connected with it. And Hubbard went way out of his way in, an, in a bulletin that he called Pain and Sex, which he wrote, I think, in 1982, where he said that sex is a very low-form, low-toned sort of activity. It's a control mechanism, and it involves, and it's related to the subject of pain. And it's been used as a control mechanism in the past. So when you're mocking up these pictures or you're imagining, you know, these, these fantasies, then you're also re-stimulating or pulling in these other damaging pictures of pain. And so you could cause yourself all kinds of trouble and problems. And that's the theory. And it is a ridiculous theory, okay? There's no truth to any of this. 
But this is what Scientologists really believe about this. And Hubbard wrote about this in the early 50s. There's like one line in one book about this. I mean, Hubbard really never went on a tear about masturbation. It was David Miscavige who made it such a crime because Hubbard had his moments for sure where he was using sex as a control mechanism in Scientology. Uh, he was a serial philanderer. He knew all about how sex could blow up organizations, and he wasn't interested in that with the Sea Org. So that was when he started putting rules in place about you know relationships and you have to be married before you have sex and all that kind of stuff. So Hubbard did that. But Miscavige made anything and everything connected with sex bad. Um, you know, I talked to my mom in an interview that I did on my channel here about this exact topic in the 70s, and nobody cared about masturbating in the 70s. Nobody was taking this one line from this one book and using it to control all of Scientologists' sex lives. That was, but when Miscavige came into power, he started doing that, and that was how it filtered down to the, you know, the unwashed masses throughout Scientology, and that's why all Scientologists get the lecture uh, and the standard, uh, you know, ethics handling when it comes up that they've been masturbating is they're they're made to read these books and they're made to look at this stuff, pain and sex, and this you know this old book from, I think it was Creation of Human Ability, and all this other stuff, and they're told, hey, look, it's damaging to you. You shouldn't be doing it. It's out ethics, right? In the same way that cheating on your diet is out ethics. It's bad for you, so you shouldn't do it. And if you keep doing it, and you know you shouldn't do it, then what the hell's your problem? Right? Like, how does that make any sense? So that's kind of the attitude about it at the public level. And at the Sea Org level, there was, <laughs> I'll just tell you guys this story because it's very funny. At least to me at the time it was. Um, we had a guy in the RPF who was an unapologetic masturbator. I mean, he just did not give a shit about the rules. He never agreed that it was damaging to him. And he was on the RPF. So he was already in all kinds of other trouble. So every day we had to hear about these guys, you know, because, you were, okay, in the RPF, you're all in the same room doing your confessionals. It's not a private thing. You know, I'm sitting right next to, on either side of me, while I'm confessing my crimes, I got these other two people confessing theirs, right? So you, everybody can hear everything. So this guy, you know, just every day, yeah, I masturbated again, and he just didn't care. And after about a month or two of this, the auditor just was like, okay, I don't even want to hear about it anymore. We're not talking about masturbating anymore. I'm not pulling it from uh, as an overt from you anymore. We're just not going to deal with it. Because the guy was just so unapologetically uncaring about it that it didn't amount to anything for him. And it, people just got bored with it after a while, right? So... So, you know, you, so by tackling it, by dealing with it head on, he just managed to push all that bullshit aside. But, um, but most people in Scientology are trying to be good boys and girls and they want to move up the bridge and they want to cooperate. So they, they, you know, follow the party line on that. And that's, that's basically how it works, at least according to my experience with it. It is time for Flash Answers. Dusty Bills. I was watching Elizabeth Moss on The View, and when they didn't mention a word about Scientology, I had a question. When celebrity Scientologists go on TV, do they come with a contract saying what the interviewer can and cannot talk about? Oh yeah, every celebrity who goes on to any talk show anywhere in the world 
has a contract about what they will or won't talk about. Uh, and if it's verboten, if it's, you know, they do a pre-interview before they do the actual interview on the show. So they already have it all worked out, what they're going to talk about. They already know what jokes the guy's going to tell. They already, they've planned everything. All of the, what you see on a talk show, almost 100% is non-spontaneous. It's, it, it's all a scripted show. It's just reality TV again. So that's what you're looking at when you're looking at uh, celebrity interviews. And, uh, and if the interviewer goes off script and starts uh, throwing questions at a celebrity that he's not expecting and doesn't want to hear, that's when you see celebrities pick up the mic and get up and walk out. Because they're not down with any of that, right? They're there to do a, a job. Most celebrities who are being interviewed are, are getting paid for that. That's their job. They're promoting their, their movies or their work. Uh, it's not just something they do for fun, right? So that's, anyway, for the most part. Of course, there's always exceptions and, and that sort of thing. But that that's, tends to be what that's all about. Gene Edmonds. I would like to ask if recruiters are trained to recognize and only approach people who look well off. I don't suppose they would be interested in ordinary Joe blogs off the street. What would happen if somebody recruited a person receiving state benefits? What happens to the person recruited and the recruiter? Actually, Gene, Scientologists as cult recruiters will go after pretty much anybody unless, unless they're like homeless or obviously non sequitur or crazy or look so bad off that they clearly don't have any money. They're not going to go after those guys, but, uh, but regular Joe Bloggs off the street are exactly who Scientology go after. And they go after them with personality tests and with books. And if they can hook them in with that, then they start working them over to see what kind of money they've got and resources they've got to pay for more services. If it becomes clear during the first initial conversation that this person has no money and no resources of any kind, okay, there's the door, you know, don't let it hit you on the way out. But a lot of people have untapped resources that they can get access to, and Scientology wants that money. So that's how it works. Ian, something happened today that has never happened before, but today I got mail from the church. This is the first time in a decade of living within a few miles of the Portland Ideal Org that I have ever received anything in the mail from them. So my question to you is, how often does the church send mailers to non-Scientologists? Basically, any and everyone who hasn't reached for the tech. And secondly, don't they realize this silly pamphlet is a year late? Yeah, well, clearly they're not sending out a whole lot of mailers that often to the non-Scientology public. In fact, that hardly ever happens within the world of Scientology. They concentrate their mailings on people who have reached for services, uh, who have bought something, right? Major and minor. And that's how they have their mailing list broken down is major service takers and then the master list of anybody who's ever bought books or services in their geographical area. So, uh, so for them to send out mailers to non-Scientologists and people who've never reached at all is definitely a blue moon event and is why you've only received one uh, even though you were within miles of the Portland Ideal Orc. Okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me gab on here. I appreciate your viewership as always. And if you find my um, content here entertaining, informative, and uh, educational, then consider joining me on Patreon and supporting this channel because it's what you guys 
or the fans that keep this thing going, right? And also, of course, you can check out merch at my uh, Teespring store, link below. You can also check out books I've recommended in my Amazon uh, account there, link below. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.